24th of February, Russia invaded Ukraine. One month into the war, cities and villages have been razed to the ground by the Russian army, with thousands of civilians killed and over 8 million turned into refugees. The courageous journalists that have been covering this brutal war have become targets themselves. At least 12 media workers have been killed so far, and the list continues to grow. And it's not just stray bullets or shelling that is dangerous. Independent journalists are hunted, threatened and intimidated everywhere where Russian soldiers have set foot. It's truly one of the most dangerous places in the world to be a reporter. Over the past few weeks, I've been speaking to four Ukrainian journalists about their work and how the war has changed them. You'll hear from Olga Takaryuk, who many of you follow on Twitter already. She's one of the most important and informative voices on Ukraine. Roman Stepanovich, CEO and executive producer at Zaborone Media, who unfortunately you won't see because, because of a bad connection. There is a war on after all. Vera Chernish. CEO and the co-founder of Creators Media Group, and Sergei Temelenko, the president of the National Union of Journalists of Ukraine. Sergei is well-versed in the struggles of local and foreign correspondents since the beginning of the invasion. His list of duties is expansive, anything from evacuating journalists and their families from dangerous areas to trying to find and distribute as much protective equipment as possible so his colleagues can continue doing their job. He told me what his schedule currently looks like. You're listening to Trouble with the Truth, a podcast about journalists in danger and the stories that get them in trouble. I'm your host, Lana Istimirova. I think that maybe my every day is a hotline day because we should react on many and many requests and many on many cases. For example, we now try to assist evacuation trips from Mariupol and dozens of our colleagues now survivor and we try to support on their way on their trip from Mariupol to western Ukraine and we try to find some humanitarian aid to our colleagues because uh, war destroyed as a flat as a destroy everything the media so we should uh, protect uh, them and we are <clears throat> changing some news information about uh, our colleagues uh, um, and we every every day and every, every moment we are afraid about uh, some and uh, news about killing journalists. Mm, big problem now is uh, how we can uh, uh, support uh, mm -hmm. journalists, refugees, uh, journalists' family who are abroad. They survived, but they they want to receive some protection too. Mm -hmm. I try to operate with all our network because my union is the biggest journalist organization in Ukraine. We consisted of more than eighty thousand members. Uh, maybe sort of uh, uh, members are retired journalists, veterans, uh, but uh, but most of our members uh, they are media workers uh, or journalists, and uh, they want to to, to survive uh, their lives and maybe survive as journalists too. Now, obviously, while some of your colleagues are trying to flee, others are actually in the war zone reporting. 
you've been in this profession for a while. What kind of advice do you give to journalists heading to the war zone or those who are caught up there? Um, what kind of advice do you give in terms of safety on how to survive, but also in terms of how to carry on doing their job and do it correctly? As we see now, every journal, every Ukrainian journalist is frontline journalist. But mm-hmm. most of my colleagues, they uh, didn't uh, train how to cover war, how to survive. And uh, our main advice is uh, that uh, they should uh, should think about safety. Life uh, isn't price for any journalist job, so they should be live. As we see, one of the biggest problems now is the lack, is a deficit of uh, safety equipment armor rests, helmets. If uh, journalists uh, uh, want to come to war zone, they should uh, should have uh, safety equipment and uh, they should uh, be trained. But if we <clears throat> talk about local journalists, they should be at home, not, not go to streets, not to cover war if they are untrained. I want to thank thousands of foreign um, journalists journalists, media workers who now are covering this Russian war in Ukraine. And uh, we see uh, this great interest uh, to this uh, coverage. And uh, maybe the main or most of frontline journalists now are in Ukraine. But we see the situation when uh, when um, foreign journalists, foreign uh, team of media workers are equipped in safety equipment, but uh, they hire Ukrainian staff fixer mm-hmm. without yeah. equipment. So it's not normal. I think that uh, every foreign media should protect Ukrainian staff, which they invite to cooperate on this uh, in this trip, in this coverage, uh, because safety is priority for us. Since the war began, many journalists in Ukraine are faced with tough choices. Some have joined the army, others had to prioritize getting their families away from danger. A journalist's job is to observe and document, but what happens when you've been forced to become a participant in the story? How does one manage professional duty with survival? Well, this is this is hard, um, but I, I, have, I have an experience of 2014. Because mm-hmm. I'm originally from Donetsk, so I already evacuated my family once from there uh, when Russia invaded uh, eastern Ukraine um, and, and made so-called republics of Donetsk and Luhansk. Uh, so this is, this is kind of experience that helps to, you know, uh, to cope together and, you know, um, do, do your job the best. And, uh, you know, that helps how to how to prepare how, where to go how to react when when it's shelling is it far or close because for for most people like any any sound outside is um, seems very dangerous when when me and, and and my wife and my parents they 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 know if it's safe or not so that helps Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, it's it's extremely hard to um, you know to organize people to work together because you know despite we 
we are in this situation we we, we just like any other um i believe uh, as any other uh, emergency service like mm-hmm, of firefighters or, or yeah or police or you know or paramedics we just we just need to go and and do our job and uh so there's no time to be scared or cry in a pill mm-hmm. and um yeah, so we, we just try our best, and uh, so we just well, what we do right now is we we building a new website, um, which uh, should be online very soon, like in a day or two, uh, which will be called uh, February twenty fourth, um, which, which is basically the day when the war started, mm-hmm. and uh, that will be uh, a, a project dedicated to, um, to documenting a war, and probably that may help. Uh, in uh, in Hug, in future, we believe so, and we also unite other freelance journalists from other media's that are not longer operating in Ukraine. Well, you know, I'm still sometimes struggling to accept that this war is actually happening, and you know, it's like uh, rationally, I, I know what is going on. I'm following the news. I'm seeing the destruction. I'm hearing the stories of, you know, my friends and acquaintances who've lost their parents, who have lost connection to their loved ones. Uh, for example, in Mariupol, they didn't know whether, you know, their loved ones are alive or dead. And so, on the one hand, you know, like I know this is happening, but sometimes, especially in the mornings when I wake up, you know, I'm kind of feel that it is all unreal it's like a bad movie it's like a nightmare and i I feel on the one hand uh, privileged because uh, i'm in western ukraine i'm not on the front line you know and uh, while many of my colleagues when many of my you know ukrainian colleagues are and for some of them it is a choice and for some some of them it's just you know due to circumstances they Mm -hmm. are in uh so um from relative safety of Western Ukraine, where I am, I'm trying to do my best, you know, to uh, tell what is happening in other parts of the country based on the my sources, on the information I receive, on official sources. But I'm also trying to kind of observe and report what is happening here because, you know, war is not just the front line. War is not just where the fighting goes on. War is also, you know, other parts of the country where there is no fighting, but there is still an impact. Mm-hmm. This is also due, I think, that uh, to the fact that, uh, you know, I, I have uh, people I can stay with here in this relatively safe part of the country. I have like a safety network in terms of, you know, there are like people who take care of my child while, I, while I'm doing my work as a journalist, because obviously now the schools are not working and, you know, my daughter is only studying online and it's very hard because she's uh, she's just in the first grade. I have support of my loved ones, of my family, but many of my colleagues don't have it. And many of them, you know, had to stop actually doing journalism, especially women, because they had to flee. They, they had to become refugees in order to protect their children. And this is something that is also kind of overlooked. You know, not all journalists actually can afford to continue doing journalism in the war times. Because, well, journalists are not only like, uh, very few, I think, of all journalists are war reporters or have experience of reporting the war, even in Ukraine, where the war has been going on since 2014. But we have the journalists who do, who cover, I don't know, environmental issues, education, social issues. And many of them now are also not needed by their media, because basically, like, the media has also downscaled the 
the scope of reporting and uh, well all reporting in ukraine now is focused on war mm-hmm. and and you know many journalists uh, just do not have like anything to do and you know the war kind of gets us like back many years back to this like very traditional family that when uh, a man has to go uh, and fight or has to stay in ukraine and defend the country and the woman has to take care of children and very often like w- women who were providing for their families you know they they cannot like now continue their work there. it wasn't it wasn't their choice as we've witnessed so far in this war press identification does not guarantee safety for journalists quite the opposite it turns them into military targets Several reporters lost their lives while covering the war, while others are kidnapped, beaten, and hunted. In the territories occupied by Russia, such as Kherson and Melitopol, Ukrainian journalists are in grave danger, as they are obstacles to the Kremlin propaganda machine. One of the photographers documenting the invasion, Max Levin, has gone missing near Kiev since 13th of March, his phone unavailable. Max Levin, a mm-hmm. photographer who has been covering the war since 2014 and he's been to places such as Ilovaysk where you know Ukrainian soldiers were massacred uh, back in 2014. So he you know he's been through this war, he has a lot of experience, he's been working with Ukrainian media but also with the international news agencies such as Reuters. Uh, his colleagues broke the news that he went missing after they tried you know all the possible ways to find out anything about his fate and these attempts were unsuccessful uh, he was working in um, in the outskirts of Kiev in the northern part of Kiev near a uh, small town Vyshgorod which is currently under the control of uh, Russian troops um, and we have no news about his whereabouts whether he's alive or, or, or not well he might have been uh, kidnapped by uh, Russian occupiers because that what was happening to Ukrainian uh, journalists uh, previously and another uh, colleague Victoria Roshina we worked together at Hromadske an independent Ukrainian TV station uh, she was kidnapped by uh, Russian uh, special forces in southern Ukraine in um, also several days ago and uh, thankfully yesterday she was released Uh, she was made to record the video in which she thanked uh, um, this Russian intelligence officers at FSB for uh, saving her life. Well, obviously, this video was reported under duress and cannot be taken, you know, seriously. Um, so far, like we don't know anything about the circumstances of, you know, her uh, detention and uh, what she had to endure while she was in captivity. Uh, hopefully like she will be able you know to after she regains uh, some of her strengths after this huge stress hopefully she will you know tell us and tell the world what has happened since recording this interview we've received terrible news about max levin on 1st of april his body was found in a village near kiev he leaves behind a wife and four young children russians don't don't care Uh, whether you know you're a journalist or you're a civilian uh, the journalists who have been killed uh, two of them um, we know the um, uh, Fox News cameraman and uh, a reporter a freelance reporter for Time magazine they were wearing uh, you know recognition marks they were wearing helmets they were wearing uh, bulletproof vests uh, with the uh, press written on, on 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 them but you know it didn't help 
they were shot and they were killed by by Russian soldiers. Uh, and you know, it, it's uh, also kind of very personal for me because I knew two of the people who were killed. It's crazy that uh, you know it seems that uh, Russian occupiers are deliberately targeting journalists because they do not want to, uh, you know, that the truth about this war gets out. And this is also confirmed by the testimony of uh, two Associated Press photographers who have been working in Mariupol, and thanks to whom actually we know about the horrors that were happening in Mariupol, about the bombing of the maternity hospital there. I'm speaking about uh, uh, Mstislav Chernov and Yevhenny Maloletka. Uh, they, uh, in, you know, they told their story a few days ago uh, in an article for the Associated Press. Mstislav Chernov described you know, how they were working in Mariupol. Just by coincidence, they got there the, the, the night when the war started. They arrived there one hour before you know, the war started. And they were working there until March 15, uh, when they were f- almost like by force evacuated from there by Ukrainian police and by Ukrainian soldiers, because uh, they said that they were on Russian, you know, uh, hit lists and Russians were looking for them in order to, uh, you know, detain them or arrest them or even do something worse because they were pissed off. Uh, with the work of these journalists in Mariupol, with the fact that they were, you know, sending photos and sending videos. They were the only international journalists working in Mariupol. Uh, and they were sending, you know, these images of uh, the bombing of uh, civilian uh, areas of residential blocks, of the hospitals, of uh, drama theater. So basically everything we know, or a huge part of what we know and what what, what we've seen uh, about Mariupol was thanks to the work of these mm-hmm. two uh, press photographers. And now they are out of the city, you know, and we don't know whether they, we will be able to get, you know, information about what is happening. This is also something uh, very worrying. The journalists are prevented from covering this war, that they are deliberately targeted, that they are arrested, they are kidnapped, mm-hmm. they are looked for by uh, Russian occupiers. Because Russia doesn't want uh, uh, the truth about this war and about the war crimes it is committing to be known. But, uh, now we see that for Russian army, journalists are targets uh, and uh, uh, as uh, targets at uh, active war zone. Most of our um, killed journalists were killed at uh, active war territories close to Kiev. But uh, we see that attitude of uh, Russians that after Russian tanks, next stage of pressure begins a wave of uh, maybe information neutralization of mm. this territory. Mm-hmm. And uh, as we see in Militopol, in Verdansk, in Kherson, this uh, city is now temporarily occupied or maybe controlled by Russian soldiers. FSB or security services soldiers, they such as flat, uh, journalist flats or newsroom, uh, they arrested our colleague just for talking about uh, some future on this territory. And uh, as I see in Kherson, we see that uh, Russians try to stop broadcasting Ukrainian TV channels and try to broadcast off Russian propaganda channels and local mm-hmm. Russian propaganda. But uh, most of my colleagues, as I see, uh, maybe all colleagues, they refuse this cooperation. And after this just talking, we see 
more serious situations as uh, may, maybe you know terrible case in Melitopol when uh, Russian invaders arrested 75-year-old father of editor-in-chief uh, Svetlana Zalizetska. She is editor-in-chief of Melitopol, uh, Ria Melitopol. It's online uh, media which cover everyday news in Melitopol. And Russian soldiers, they decided to stop this uh, objective media and they arrested uh, her father and now uh, they demanded from her to change her father, 75 years old, for her. And it's fascist tactics uh, when uh, Russia try, Russians try to pressure on family members uh, because they want to control this media. After such uh, pressure, we see some situations when our colleague, one or maybe Svetlana Zelizetska or other, or Lev Baturin, who were detained uh, eight uh, days in Kherson, want to be in profession. But uh, we see some examples, some cases when MV Holding or Militopolsky Vedomosti Holding, when after one day, uh, arrests of um, publisher, they stopped news producing. So it's the second goal of Russians to stop independent media and independent journalism. See this case and be silenced or be with us. Informational neutralization for next for propaganda. But for this stage, we see that uh, nobody from local journalists and media Nobody support occupation, and uh, uh, now we see that just uh, um, Russians uh, can uh, maybe broadcast some short uh, uh, news or short statements at local radio stations, and as in Berdyansk about some humanitarian aids from Russians, but we. We we didn't hear, we don't hear any news production. Yeah, absolutely. When you're willingly present this disinformation to people and we have so much evidence that there has been disinformation, blatant lies, you share responsibility for all the murder and destruction because sometimes it just seems like there's no limit, limit to the cynicism. Um, when you see these doctored stories coming out about the bombings um, of the Mariupol maternity ward and this poor woman being presented as some actress, you know, faking injury, I mean, the heart just stops at the level of cynicism. And that's why when it comes to telling the truth, even a simple video or an interview can tell such a huge story. And recently, just a few days ago, the U.S. have officially stated that Russia has indeed committed war crimes in Ukraine, which is unsurprising. But we all know all of this. We know all of this thanks to the tireless work of reporters and ordinary citizens, because it's not just the reporters on the ground; it's the people sending in videos, where and everyone can become a storyteller. We're just working very hard to build a reliable network of officials or, uh, you know, commanders, people in army, in police, uh, in, um, you know, local communities that can prove that this or that really happened. And this is extremely hard because we cannot make that big network uh, all around Ukraine. So we're trying to focus now more on Kiev and Kharkiv. 90% of our job right now 
it's not only to find a fact or a video and, and write about it or post about it. It's 90% is about proving that this is really it, that the plane that has been shot down was Russian, not Ukrainian. Or, you know, uh, like bodies, uh, long, you know, it's from Russian army, not like territorial defense. Well, you know, um, in my work, uh, I was always most interested in human stories, you know. So even now, like, um, I think like the main like, priority for me and things that attract most of my attentions are the stories of testimonies of, you know, the people, witnesses who were there, who were seeing what is happening with their own eyes and who are telling their stories story if they are able to do that and we are speaking now about people who you know managed to escape uh, uh kiev uh, suburbs uh, bucha and european you know first like those areas that were occupied in the very first days of war and people were trying to flee there so a lot of their stories started coming in, you know, about like how Russian occupiers were coming from door to door, seizing people's mobile phones exactly to prevent, you know, them from getting information, um, you know, and uh, also in recent days, people from Mariupol who were escaping from there, who are telling their stories about the horrors they've seen there. Also about, you know, how Russian soldiers on the checkpoints, they were making them strip naked. They were checking if they have like tattoos that somehow could indicate their loyalty to Ukraine or I don't know like, what, what other things. Uh, and, and again, like uh, seizing their mobile phones or checking, you know, the contents, like what, what they have on their mobile phones, checking for, checking for some, I don't know, compromising content. Um, and we also know that in areas that are, uh, I hope, temporarily under Russian control in southern Ukraine, such as Kherson, Melitopol, Berdyansk, what Russians have been doing, they've been disconnecting, uh, uh, first thing first, like local population from Ukrainian TV and radio stations, that they were switching them off and they were, you know, turning on Russian propaganda uh, radio and TV. The scariest things of this war, how people are somehow deprived of their dignity, you know, because they are put in such an inhumane circumstances to survive that they basically are ready to do anything and to say anything just to be, just to survive, you know, just to just to leave. And and I'm afraid that in the next stages of war, like if it goes on, we will see more and more of that. We will see Russian propaganda instrumentalizing more and more, you know, Ukrainians who are deported to Russia, deported to Belarus. For this episode, I also spoke to Vera Chernish, the founder and CEO of Media Creators Group. Before the war, she ran several websites dedicated to tech, programming and IT business. Ukraine has a thriving tech community. But after the invasion, they changed their focus to the war-related content in order to help the readers navigate this new, cruel reality. Uh, so certainly, when uh, on the 21st of February, when the war started, uh, obviously we understood we couldn't go on writing about, I don't know, new laptops or about how to build your startup, because nobody in Ukraine cared about it. And of course, my team was in shock of what's going on, the same as most of Ukrainians, all of Ukrainians were. When, you know, I woke up at five in the morning when my accountant called me crying and saying, Vera, we are not getting any money today. I said, why? And she said, the war has started. Uh, we decided we won't write about politics because we know nothing about politics and it's not our expertise. And there are plenty of websites who write about politics, who write about like frontline. And uh, we decided we will... Uh, 
do the following things. Uh, first, we decided to support all the like volunteer initiatives that we see and that come to us. There are plenty now in Ukraine. And if there is some fundraising or if there is some new service, like from the second day of war, we started to get plenty of press releases. We launched a service for refugees. We launched a service for to find homes. We launched a service to transfer from war zones. So plenty of services because Ukrainians, they started to do something to try to help. Yeah, and I noticed on your website as well that um, uh, one, one article that mentioned that Ukrainian developers actually created an... Um, air raid map that helps people mm-hmm. to know when um, when the next air raid is going to happen. And it's this interactive map. And mm-hmm. another thing is there is this app uh, that helps to track all the queues in Western Ukraine. And that's why um, I found your media very fascinating, because I often talk to journalists who are in the war zone mm-hmm. or who write about politics, but you uh, gather all this crucial information that mm-hmm. people need and place it on your website. Yeah, it's... it's uh... Thanks a lot for what you're saying. It really means a lot to me because, uh, yeah, as I said, we, of course, we could write about, start to write about war and about politics, but we thought that we can do something that others don't do as much. You know, we, we could concentrate on writing something useful. For example, now we uh, started a series of articles of businesses who relaunched uh after war because now in my opinion we have a a huge problem uh in the country that people from inside some of them even don't don't understand as much now but they will very soon is that uh on the 24th of february all the economy stopped so everybody almost everybody stopped working like we didn't stop working as journalists but as a business we also stopped because st- nobody buys advertising so we stopped you know earning money and everybody stopped like this but uh, you know we can now win a battle because our army is doing very good but we can lose lots of uh, crucial things because our economy will be ruined i want to write about businesses who relaunched after war to show how we did it and to inspire others to go to work. Mm-hmm. Of course, it's of course it sounds very strange, you know, business in time of war. But on the other hand, uh, we have zo- z- zones and quite plenty of them who are kind of fine, you know. So yeah, there are airstrike alerts, but there is no Russian troops around, and you can work. And it's very important for all the Ukrainian nation to go and work and not to lose economy. What struck me during each of these conversations is the resilience, courage, compassion and hard work displayed by these incredible journalists. But a big question is, what can we do from the comfort of our homes to help? How can we ensure that journalists are safe and that Ukrainian media can survive this war? And what foundation can we build for the future so that the crimes against media workers can be prosecuted? Vera and her colleagues have been raising funds to keep their media company afloat and keep Ukrainians informed. Raman and his colleagues have created the 2402 Fund for journalist safety equipment and evacuation. Sergei has been discussing with his colleagues the idea to set up a special tribunal to prosecute war crimes against journalists and media workers in Ukraine. Yes, you know, it's actually also my my concern and my worry, you know, that uh, eventually the world will just move on and, you know, talk about other things. And if the war goes on, if there is some sort of a stalemate, there are no like breakthroughs, 
everyone will just, you know, forget about it. My answer would be like continue speaking about Ukraine, like going out to, you know, protest, pressure your governments to help Ukraine more, to provide more. Well, first of all, military support to Ukraine because we badly need the weapons to defend ourselves. You know, we don't want to like attack anyone, but we have to defend ourselves. And of course, like reach out to Ukrainians if you can, like help Ukrainian refugees in your countries, uh, help, you know, to provide assistance to Ukrainian civilians who badly need medical supplies in many parts of the country. This, I think, is like the main priority now to get medical supplies, uh, because a lot of elderly people, a lot of people with uh, chronic diseases are suffering uh, because of shortage of supplies. So just don't forget, you know, my message yeah. is just don't forget about Ukraine. I've attached some useful links for donation in the episode description. If you're moved by these stories, please consider donating.